This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. And just a warning, this segment contains brief mentions of sex depicted on screen. If you were around in the early aughts, you remember rushing home after school to do your homework while watching Christina Aguilera, Jessica Simpson, and Britney Spears on TRL. While we grew up and our music tastes expanded, Hollywood is a different story. TV and movie makers just can't seem to loosen their grip on that iconic idea of the mic-wielding, hip-shaking, nubile pop princess. The latest of these is HBO's The Idol, which comes to a rocky end this Sunday. The show follows a fictional pop diva named Jocelyn and her stormy relationship with club owner slash talent manager and cult leader Tedros, played by actual pop star The Weeknd. I know it might be hard for you to, to digest this right now, but I'm running the show. Okay. Let me just ask you to get it out on the table. What did you think of The Idol? I have not enjoyed watching The Idol. This is NPR music editor Hazel Sills. I just think that the show so far is, it's a lot. It's very grating. It's very violent. It's very intense. And I don't know, I just haven't been having the fun hate watch experience that that I thought I would be having. Critics and audiences have trashed the show, calling it sleazy, lazy, and overall not nearly as fun as Hit Me Baby One More Time. Looking for something sweet When it comes time to eat You better start to run when I call And for Hazel, a pop music expert, the show feels stuck singing an old refrain about a music industry that no longer exists. Today, Hazel and I get into what made the idol a little off-key and the much more interesting stories behind modern pop stars. Hazel, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you so much, Brittany. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So we're not here to talk about why I didn't like it or why you didn't like it. Although I do think those things will come up. (laughs) I mean, after all, the, the show also flopped among broader audiences. So I think that most of us didn't like it. But you wrote a piece about how the idol is based on a fundamental misread of the music industry. What mark do you think that this show missed? I mean, I think the biggest mark is that, you know, Jocelyn in the show is supposed to be one of the biggest pop stars in the world. Yeah, you're an icon. You're, you're a legend. Oh, my God, you're so beautiful. I gotta, I gotta, can I, I gotta have a dance with you. Can I dance with you? Like, she is a main pop girl. You only need to know her first name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the show takes place in 2023. But she is not a pop star that I recognize anymore. She feels like a pop star who is cut in the cloth of early 2000s girls or mid-2000s girls. She is built in the Mm. image of Christina Aguilera or early Britney Spears. I just don't think we make pop stars like that anymore. I think if you look Mm. at the charts, 
what today's pop stars look like and, and sort of the femininity that they're selling, the sexuality that they're selling, and, and also just mm-hmm. on a base level, the music that they make, what they're communicating in their music is a lot more complicated and interesting than just size two, blonde, white pop girl who's just singing about how she wants you to pull her hair. I feel like Jocelyn would have been huge in 2002, not 2023. Mm. If I look at the Billboard charts, mm. can I find a Jocelyn? And I don't know if I can. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's a really good point. I don't know if I can find a Jocelyn on the charts today either, who have emerged within the past, I don't know, five or so years. I'm thinking about Billie Eilish, Doja Cat, mm. Olivia Rodrigo. It's just a completely different embodiment of a pop girl. Jocelyn on The Idol, she's embattled. She's been through a lot. But she's also just like weakly drawn. And so there's not a lot undergirding (laughs) the character, the choices that she makes or anything that she does, aside from the fact that she had a really difficult childhood. But they don't really get too deep into that. The thing that I kept feeling like was missing that is present in something like A Star is Born or even like Beyond the Lights, which you brought up in your essay, is that like the main pop girl's they're driven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's like some drive to like succeed, to win. There's a desire to perform. There's a desire to make great music. You would see these girls in rehearsals, in the gym, in the studio, like working hard. I found it so interesting that Jocelyn doesn't even really have that much motivation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're like one of the biggest pop stars in the world, we want to see that drive in the show. And it doesn't feel like it's coming from within her. What I get from the show is that she is sort of not allowed to do anything on her own. Mm, Right. We don't see that drive from her as a character because I think that the show is just so hell-bent on depicting her as a product who's being, you know, maneuvered and coached in all of these different directions. The idea that you know, Jocelyn would have a breakdown and would have to cancel her tour and it could end her career is kind of crazy. Stars are canceling their tours every day. The mm-hmm. idea of making your mental health a central part of your career is something that a lot of stars do. Um, stars have more agency these days. Their music actually speaks mm. to their struggles, you know, actually reflects who they are. You mentioned Billie Eilish earlier or Doja Cat. Like, those are artists who I know who they are. Um, right. And I know who they are, not just in their press, but in their music as well. And Jocelyn is just blank. It's been reported that portions of the show were reshot because The weekend said that The Idol, in its earlier form, when it had a different director, was too much from the quote-unquote female perspective, which is, I'm just going to leave that on a shelf. I'm just going to leave that on the shelf. <laughs> and the woman director who was first attached to the project, Amy Simmons, she ended up leaving The Idol. And I don't know. I just We're living in this post-free Britney world. A lot of the pop girls from the previous era have said their piece about the misogyny they experienced, like Britney and, and Jessica Simpson and, and so many others. And the rest of us, like listeners, are smarter about how pop music is made and understand the machinations of fame better now than we did back then. And yet, even with all that, The Idol still wasn't a satisfying watch. What did this show miss about how misogyny works in the music industry? And do you think that's also why it failed to land with audiences? Mm, That's a big question. It all comes down to how thinly sketched Jocelyn's character is. What the show misses about misogyny is a lot. Like something I think is funny is like 
Tedros, who's sort of the shadowy club owner slash producer. Played by the weekend in a terrible ponytail <laughs> wig, but yes. Ponytail is a generous term for whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> A rat tail. I think it's she referred calls it a rat to tail. as a rat tail several times throughout the show. It's yes. like it's like stick straight. Like there's no, it doesn't fall like natural hair. It's so bad. Anyway, Tedros. Tedros keeps telling her like pop music is a Trojan horse for big ideas. Pop music is like the ultimate Trojan horse. You get people to dance. You get people to sing along. To say whatever you want. Right. Yeah, he's like, you have something inside of you that you need to express. But then what he wants her to express is just an even sexier version of the sexy music <laughs> that she's making. Yes. <laughs> There's been chatter about how some people feel like the sex scenes are too much. I've seen a lot of things watching HBO over the years. So it's not like that was particularly shocking for me. I think that one of the failures of this show is how poorly executed the sex scenes are. I don't believe the chemistry or the attraction of the characters, but it just also felt like a complete misunderstanding of how many people experience attraction. <laughs> yeah, or or honestly, like, experience being groomed. Mm. Obviously, like, the show has its vision, but the music industry is not roses. <laughs> it's not like every woman has agency and can do whatever they want all the time. But if you're going to make a show about how a young artist is sort of slowly groomed and preyed upon and, like, someone sort of infiltrates their life, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about R. Kelly. There are parallels to the music industry here, but... That requires sensitivity and it requires writing that actually understands how someone can get caught up in what is basically sort of a cult. You weren't feeling the idol. Again, a lot of us weren't, so nothing weird about that. But when thinking about the way that you would want to see the machinations of the music industry depicted in TV or film, what would you rather see and how would that narrative play out differently? You know, I talked about not being able to see Jocelyn and her sort of ilk on like the billboard top 100 charts because pop music today is not like bubblegum Max Martin produced pop. Like pop music mm. is someone like Morgan Wallen, who is a country star and who is super controversial. Like he was someone who was, you know, suspended by his record label and pulled from radio rotation and banned from the CMA awards after a video surfaced of him using a racial slur. And after that happened, he only became more popular. That's mm. crazy. If a show was made about him, you could get into so many of the sticky aspects of the country music industry and what people are looking for in stars. Mm. I think there's just like a wealth of stories that are worth telling that don't have to be focused on these young white women in pop. In my piece, I sort of talk about Atlanta. It's a very nuanced portrayal of what it means to be mm. a young rapper, a young Black artist who's sound and style is being like rapidly co-opted by the music industry and is just like on this fast track to success. And that show is about viral fame in a way that feels very modern. And I just want everyone to get a little bit more creative and maybe listen to more music, maybe. <laughs> that would be a good place to start. <laughs> That's a really good point you made about Atlanta. One of the things I thought that that show did really well was show how the world changed around Paperboy. Like he stayed pretty consistent throughout the entire run of the series. It reminds me of this movie with Helen Mirren, the queen, and she plays 
the queen in it. And one of the things she said about playing the queen was when you act as the queen, you don't change your behavior. It's really about how everybody else acts around you. That to me feels like a really interesting way to think about fame. Instead of it fundamentally changing you, like the world around you gets stranger and stranger. So like we're talking about the portrayals of pop stars, ultimately like rich, famous, sexy, charmed, beautiful women. It's so different from our own lives. Mm-hmm. I'm different from my life. I don't know what yours, but <laughs> yeah, I'm a pop star. I, I'm, <laughs> I should have told you at the beginning. Of the <laughs> at the beginning, <laughs> just to ground it, just to ground the conversation. <laughs> Do portrayals of fictional pop stars on screen matter? Pop stars tell us a lot about ourselves, who we put on those pedestals, who we raise up. That's also kind of disturbing to me about Jocelyn's character and how she feels like a pop star that would have existed in 2001 or 2002, not 2023. Mm. is like, well, why do we keep going back to this moment in pop music? I mean, Britney Spears, there's been a number of documentaries about her situation and articles. In the past few years alone. Yeah. yeah. And like, why do we keep going back to that moment in pop history where women didn't have enough agency or You know, they didn't get to express themselves in their music when they arguably do now. I also think it's like, you know, misogyny is still present in the industry for sure. Sure. You know, sexism, racism, like, but it's it's more nuanced than it was in those early 2000s when it felt like only a certain kind of person could become the biggest pop star in the world. And now everything's gotten a lot more complicated. So it's like, why do we keep going back to the main pop girl (laughs) motif (laughs) as like the character in which the whole industry, you know, rotates around. Hazel, thank you so much for joining me today. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. That was NPR music editor, Hazel Sills. Coming up, these pop princesses have traditionally been rail thin, but my next guest has applied a critical lens to how we traditionally think about fatness. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. 
Today on this show, we're talking about anti-fat bias and the problem with tying work ethic to thin bodies. And to cover this, I have a special guest you've probably heard before. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Maintenance Phase. My name is Aubrey Gordon, and I am here. Aubrey Gordon is the co-host of the popular podcast, Maintenance Phase, which debunks diet culture and wellness myths from the past to the present. As a writer, she's been covering anti-fat bias for years, and her most recent book, You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People, came out earlier this year. But before all that, Aubrey was known, or unknown rather, as the anonymous writer, Your Fat Friend. The very first piece was called A Request from Your Fat Friend, and like 30,000 people read it in a week. I was like, whoa, okay. After her open letter went viral, Aubrey's life changed. And that journey is chronicled in the film, Your Fat Friend, directed by Jeannie Finlay. Filmed over six years, Your Fat Friend follows Aubrey from anonymous blogger to published author and podcast host. After its world premiere at the 2023 Tribeca Film Festival, I was able to interview Aubrey live at the festival in New York City. So for those of you who couldn't make it, here's some of my conversation with Aubrey. Welcome to It's Been a Minute Live. This is the first IBAM live show that I have done since I've been hosting the show. It's the first live show I've done in five years. And I've got a phenomenal guest today, Aubrey Gordon. Hello. Thank you for having me. What a treat to be here. My absolute pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Okay. So... This entire documentary is about you. It's like one thing to be a public figure, right? Like an author, podcast host. But I feel like it's a totally different thing to allow people into your home and into your life to follow you around for six years, I believe it was. Yeah, six years. Yeah. I mean, this journey follows you like before you even stopped being an anonymous online writer. How did you get involved in a documentary about (laughs) your life? Yeah. At a point in time when you wanted to remain anonymous. Yeah. Um, so Jeannie, the director, got in touch with me six or seven years ago. Like, oh, it's been a while. It's, it's been a minute. It's been a minute, even. <laughs> um, she was working on an essay film and asked if I wanted to write the voiceover for her essay film. And I was like, do I want to write for a film? Yes, I would like to write for mm-hmm. a film. That sounds great. A few months later, she called and was like, mm, I think instead I'm going to do a few different subjects and sort of weave their stories together. Would you be willing to be one of the subjects? And I was like, mm, we can talk about it. And then a few months after that, uh, we did some test filming and mm-hmm. she was like, how about being the only person in the film? How about it's just you? Uh, and it was sort of a really wild ride and a decision that I made like, I don't know what, six or eight months into writing, like very, very, very early on. Was the documentary always meant to be about like following a fat person around, like about their life? Is that what she was always working mm-hmm. toward with that project? Yeah, absolutely. She wanted to make a film about fat and fatness as a sort of maligned and misunderstood thing from the perspective of fat. Fat people, we do so much talking about fat people and we almost never talk to fat people or ask Mm. fat people what they need or want in those conversations. Thin people are always the experts on fatness and fat people. And fat people are even seen as unreliable narrators of our own bodies and health and needs, right? Mm. This feels like a big 
deal <laughs> um, <laughs> to have sort of fat stories told by fat people is not something we've gotten much of in this world. As a writer trying to combat anti-fat bias and debunk diet culture, you know, as we're shown in the film, a lot of hate has been directed at you and you've been threatened and you've been doxxed. What is it about the idea of fat liberation or even like, let's take, even if we took it down several notches, what is it the idea about just fat people being in public and, and hanging around that makes other people want to threaten violence? Yeah, there are a lot of theories about that. And I will say, listen, I think there are some folks who have seen the film and come up to me afterwards and been like, well, you know, when you become a big enough target, people start to threaten you. That started immediately. Hmm. And that happens to fat people with 50 or 100 followers on the internet, right? Like, it takes almost nothing in terms of, like, a quote-unquote size of a target for folks to zero in on fat folks and do almost everything they can to just make their lives as hard as possible. Right. It's, it's really, really rough. And there are sort of a number of theories that folks have about that. My favorite is, well, two. I, favorite is was a weird word choice. <laughs> I'm realizing the one now. I love. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite. Um, <laughs> there are sort of twofold. One is that it makes folks really uncomfortable, especially folks who have dedicated their lives and all of their time to becoming smaller and to working out as much as possible and dieting as much as possible. And the implication is all that time that you have spent, all that energy, all that money was for naught. I think the other thing is, listen, uh, we go through phases as a society. There's always one, <laughs> at least. But we go through phases of having these sort of social punching bags, right? Who are the folks that it's okay to treat terribly in public, right? And when that order gets questioned, there's a lot there and it really upsets folks. And they are taking all of those sort of negative emotions that they were pouring into, you know, kicking the dog, as it were. But also things like when I get on an airplane, People are in an uncomfortable situation. Nobody likes airplane seats. Nobody no. likes being in an airport. And folks look for a target of, like, where can I place this frustration? Often it's on ticket agents. Ticket agents have really high rates of assault on the job. Wild as hell, <gasps> oh my, my dude. Wild as hell. And also, if someone has to sit next to a fat person, that becomes one of their other targets of that just sort of latent unease and not feeling good and being in a space that makes them feel bad, you know? So we just become sort of a convenient target and one that is widely accepted. Mm. In the film, there's this moment in the documentary that really touched our team. Throughout the film, we hear memories and reflections from your parents on how they approached weight loss with you when you were a kid. At one point, the director, Jeannie, asks your mother if she ever thought you'd lose weight when she was signing you up for these weight loss programs. And we actually have the clip. Did you think that there was a point where she would lose the weight and become smaller? No. No, I never did think that. There's a later moment in the film where your mom reflects on it a little bit more deeply. If we could also play that clip, that would be great. It was my responsibility. Her size was my responsibility. Very clearly, that was the message from my husband. And um, so I took action, but I didn't really believe in it. 
And so I sort of went through motions. What I wish I had said or done. How did it feel for you to see your mom admit that? So just after this shoot happened, my mom and I had a long conversation that night and into the next morning. My mom is an extraordinarily intelligent person. She's extremely thoughtful. She has two master's degrees and a doctorate. Like that lady is smart as hell in like early childhood brain development and counseling and like all kinds of like feelingsy things that would help a lot with this. Yeah. And I think the hardest part for me was the conversation after the shoot, which was she was beating herself up harder than I have maybe almost ever seen Mm. feeling like she didn't even think about what the outcome of this thing would be. But that that was her job as a parent in the 80s and 90s. If you had a fat kid, your job was to get your kid unfat, right? Hmm. And I have just an immense amount of empathy. I mean, like right now today in the U.S. and the U.K. in particular, fat kids are taken from their homes by the uh, by the court system for no other reason than being fat, Right. There are um, there was a court case in the UK some years ago where the judge said, you've got lovely children, they're incredibly well-behaved, they're bright, they're polite, they're wonderful, um, but you haven't managed to get their weight under control, so we're taking them away from the home, right? So that came from real pressure that was being applied to my parents as a kind of like runoff stigma, right, that exists to this day with parents of fat kids. It's a tough one. Mm. Just to touch on the film. One more time before we move on. In it, you reveal that you are an avid collector of vintage diet books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a clip of that I would love to show. What would Jesus eat? If your answer is bread and wine, you are correct. How to take 20 pounds off your man? Oh, she's hugging him, but she's also measuring him. What an absolute creep. Oh, Elizabeth. America's foremost astrologian tells you how to stay healthy. Why do you collect these books? I'm dying to know. Uh, Okay, so my sister-in-law actually uh, gave me the book that inspired the collection, which is that uh, Slimming Down with Ed McMahon. Mm -hmm. She found it in like an antique store or something and cracked it open. And it is, for those of you who know Ed McMahon's sort of voice, The entire (laughs) book is written in Ed McMahon's voice. One of the chapters starts with like, now, ladies, I know what you're thinking. I'm a man. What could I possibly know about dieting? But listen, hear me out. I'm a fan of women in general and in particular. Where you're just like, what? Am I in the Friars Club? Like, what's happening here? Like, And it just sort of went from there. It is so funny and fascinating to read these as little time capsules of social values that are sort of packaged up as scientific findings Mm. and social values that are entirely unquestioned in the text. Like, you'll just be reading a diet book from, like, the mid-60s, right, when there's sort of, like, the beginnings of some social upheaval, 
And they will just uncritically have things like, we all know the woman's role in the home is to keep her man happy. And sometimes that means he needs a steak. And you're like, what? Right. Um, (laughs) And I think it really helps illuminate how we do that today. Right. Mm. And it's part of a social backdrop that we're part of. Mm. If your friends are all into a thing, that thing starts to seem more normal to you. Right. And you can end up with books that do that same thing. But right now. Right. I find them endlessly hilarious. Like, endlessly hilarious. There's one by Cher in there. And I'm like, baby. But Cher has never been. Correct. Almost all of the celebrity diet books are from people who have always been thin. It's really bananas. Do you open it and it says, like, oh, genetics. Is that the first page or does no, it no, just. No, no, no. The, the story is always like, one time I weighed 15 pounds more and it was a hard time for me. And then I lost those 15 pounds. So let me tell you, fatty, how to become a thin person. Right? <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, that's not. I got a different task on my hands. Like, no. (laughs) Coming up, I talk with Aubrey about her hit podcast, Maintenance Phase. And we'll unpack the sinister appeal of The Biggest Loser. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, speaking of diet trends, your podcast, Maintenance Phase, a round of applause for Maintenance Phase. Thanks, guys. A round of applause for Maintenance Phase. You know, Maintenance Phase has covered everything from Dr. Oz to Celery Juice to Weight Watchers or the WW as they so tried to rebrand. Your co-host, Michael Hobbs, has said that he was inspired to start the show because he noticed that while there were tons of health podcasts out there, he felt that very few of them treated wellness trends with any skepticism. Why is skepticism so central to the mission of your show? Because this is an area where very smart, very critical thinkers abandon all of those characteristics about themselves and just hurl themselves into sort of the wishful thinking of wellness, right? Hmm. And as a result, in some cases, we're straight up exposing ourselves to health risks. Any way you slice it, whatever sort of study you look at, upwards of 80 to 90% of the time, diets lead to not only not losing weight, but gaining weight in the long term. And that felt like something worth 
talking about? Mm. If if we're talking to an audience of people who are the most invested in losing weight, that's probably a group of people who should know the opposite is probably going to happen when they go on that diet or when they try that detox or what have you. When I found maintenance phase, it was it was so nice to hear really smart people do great reporting on how truly strange those diet and wellness trends were. And like, it just made me feel like, okay, I'm not alone. Like we, like we all saw that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And I've heard so many other people who survived millennial diet culture describe the show as healing. Mm. What has it been like to actually make these episodes? Like, how does it feel on your end? I think the response is absolutely greater than I ever anticipated. I think um, some of our biggest fans now are healthcare providers who have gotten in touch. It's wild. Interesting. Yeah. Um, who have gotten in touch and said, you know, we get two days of nutrition education in medical school maximum uh, wow. in the United States. And medical school is famously very long and hard from what I understand. Yes, totally. Interestingly, it seems to have been the biggest mind blower with actual healthcare providers in like a really fantastic and exciting way. I will say the flip side of that is when we do something that is even five or 10 years in the past, the emails that we get are like, that was hilarious. Good point. I didn't think about it at the time, but like, that was really funny. Uh, when we do things that are currently in play, we did an episode on the keto diet and my God, gird your loins. Like, whoa. <laughs> really? The keto bros came out hard against that episode. Oh, no. um, because again, it feels like folks are sinking in such parts of their identity and staking judgments of their character on whether and how they participate in these diets, right? So it just feels way too hot and too close to home for folks. Um, so I also didn't sort of consider at the outset of the show the degree to which we're just like tromping around in people's body trauma. Uh, and that's a lot, you know? People will have big feelings about that, for sure. Understandably, so do I, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was listening to your episode about the biggest loser. Hey. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear some disdain for The Biggest Loser. Yeah. Oh my God. So The Biggest Loser was a very popular weight loss competition TV show that started in 2004 and ran for 18 seasons. And in the episode, you point out that many of the people on the show who lost lots of weight gained it all back and then some. If the point of the show is to make fat people thin and then the show doesn't really fulfill that purpose, Right. Like, imagine, like, you watch House Hunters, and at the end, they're like, oh, no house. You know what I mean? Just, yeah. it, they, you, can, you couldn't get away well, with that, that I don't think. That house wasn't actually for sale. Yeah, they're like, oh, sorry, no <laughs> yeah. house. Yep, yeah. no, guess you back home. Yeah. <laughs> you, you hunted it. It's not scientifically yeah. possible to sell that house. Exactly. <laughs> if the point of The Biggest Loser is to make fat people thin, and the show doesn't really fulfill that purpose, and so then we have to look at why audiences love this content so much. Why do you think people are so obsessed with transformation content? Boy, that's a great question. So I would say two things. One, if we're looking at how well reality shows work on their premise, like I am a dedicated Bachelor viewer. <laughs> so I do not that's have a really any good point. ground to stand on in this particular <laughs> conversation, right? I'm like, oh, cool. So one couple has gotten married and stayed married. Awesome. I would argue that the point of The Biggest Loser, the thesis statement of The Biggest Loser was anyone can lose weight if they try hard enough. But the purpose of that show was not to make fat people thin. It was to make people who are, quote unquote, not that fat feel better about not being that fat, 
about not being one of us. The point of that show was to humiliate fat people on camera, to show fat people being abused on camera, often to show fat folks get injured on camera or exercise until the point that they vomited. So the stars of that show were the two trainers who were absolutely horrendous to fat folks. They would shout things at fat people on that show like, uh, you better not get down on the floor. You better not stop running. Otherwise, we're going to carry you out of here in a coffin, right? That like, it is horrifically, horrendously abusive stuff that if you put it, uh, those same words in the mouth of an abuser on a TV show, like on Law & Order SVU or something, people yeah. would be like, what a monster. Yeah. But because it was coming from trainers and because it was aimed at fat people, it was seen as some kind of moral triumph. I think it really speaks to our worst selves and the parts of us that want to see other people treated badly so that we can feel better about our own bodies and our own lot in life. I wish it were a less gnarly answer than that, but in my heart of hearts, <laughs> that's my take. As someone who has looked at dieting and weight loss trends over the years, I'd love to know your thoughts, speaking on now, on the quote-unquote miracle diabetes drug, Ozempic, and my TikTok has been wall to wall with celebrity with rumors of celebrities who are purportedly allegedly using these medications outside of their intended use for perhaps doctor-recommended weight loss, let's say, or for diabetes treatment. There are, from what I hear, purportedly celebrities that are using this, but also, I mean, now it's available to many everyday folks. Why do you think Ozempic and the like are having such a big moment right now? I think Ozempic and the like are having a big moment because they are what we have always been promised by weight loss anything, right? Which is you can eat whatever you want, you can do whatever you want and still lose weight. In order to keep that weight loss, you have to take that injection for the rest of your life, right? That if you don't oh. stay on those, yeah, bud, if you don't stay on those shots for forever, the weight comes back. But two things that I find extremely troubling. One is we are having this whole conversation about a drug that is used to treat diabetes that people with type 2 diabetes need in order to stay healthy and in order to stay alive. And I have yet to see any coverage that quotes one diabetic person or one specialist in diabetes. And the other very troubling thing to me is that this is leading us right back to everything we did in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. It's leading us right back to looking to celebrities' bodies to try and figure out who's losing weight and are they doing it in the right way or the wrong way, which is policing other folks' bodies. It leads us right back to this sort of myth of a body-based meritocracy, the idea that your body is earned based on what you do. And it leads us right back to this belief that our weight is solely within our individual control. And when folks believe that, that is one of the greatest predictors of bias against fat people writ large, and personal dislike of fat people on an individual level. The thing that makes me most nervous about that discourse is that we are absolutely opening the floodgates to judging and dismissing fat people in ways that we had sort of started to make some teeny tiny inroads into questioning. And it really feels wild to watch that all just get washed away. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we've been talking about on our team as we were preparing to talk to you today is how it seems like we're returning to this time of thin is in. Not to say that I ever tr 
truly went out. I feel like Finn is like always in. This is a, a thing that folks have brought up in interviews before. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm a size 26. There was never a point where people were like, that's cool. Good. Right. Like that was not there's just like slightly less of like, you're going to die. Right. Like That was about it. Um, but yeah, there is definitely this um, much higher emphasis on very, very thin people and very, very thin bodies. I, I wonder with, with that being the moment that I think we can all kind of agree that we're in right now. Why is fat liberation so important right now? It feels like we have an opportunity to do it differently this time and to reckon with the idea that like fat people have entered the chat, right? (laughs) When you talk about why you want to do Ozempic and you don't want to be stuck at home and you don't want to be 350 pounds, whatever unthinkable number that you pull down from the air is somebody's weight who can hear you when you say that. Fat folks are here. We are listening. We are part of this conversation. And actually, we ought to be at the center of it, frankly. Anything short of that just gets sort of reverted to what thinner folks want to hear said back to them, right? Which is like, it's okay to want to lose weight. You're right to want to be thin, right? Thinness is a sign of a strong work ethic or dedication or piety or whatever. Um, This feels like an extremely important moment to interrogate all of that for the sake of fat folks and thin folks alike. I love it. Thank you, a smattering. (laughs) (laughs) You know, given all of the difficulties and the harassment that can come with the work that you do, or even that just can come with being just like a person living in the world, right? What makes the work that you do worth it? I will say... I had a conversation with my niece. This was a few years ago. I think she was like 10 or 11. And she was telling me about a friend of hers who kept saying, oh, my God, I look so fat. I hate the way I look in this. But that same friend was both thinner than my niece and would pretty actively bully her younger brother, who was a fat kid. And my niece was trying to figure out how to unpack all of that. And she was like, I know it's her stuff, but also it makes me feel bad. But I feel like I can't tell her that because it's her stuff that we're talking about. But then also she's mean to her brother and her brother's really nice and she should leave him alone. And we were able to have this whole conversation about like, you're totally right. That is her stuff. That's not about you. And like, you could decide to have this conversation with her or not, but also you get to sort of protect your own peace of mind. And I think knowing that we are reaching other adults in the lives of kids who can help shepherd through more of those sorts of thoughtful conversations about how to engage with that stuff rather than just submitting to it, that feels immensely worth it. I mean, I think the other thing things that feel immensely worth it. I can't claim any credit for this at all. Zero. New York City just became one of a handful of jurisdictions to ban discrimination on the basis of weight in this city, right? That is a huge win. That is a huge win. And seeing that kind of progress also makes this work extremely worth it. Knowing that there will be material impacts in the lives of fat people um, as a result of fat folks getting together and organizing and sort of moving the ball forward is is a huge get. 
Well, Aubrey, thank you so much. This was so amazing. This is so fun. Yeah, I can't believe I got to talk to you. <laughs> that was host, author, and subject of the upcoming film, Your Fat Friend, Aubrey Gordon. Hi, Brittany. I'm Vincent from San Francisco. I'm Olivia Rodrigo's biggest fan. I just wanted to know if you listened to her new song yet. <laughs> First of all, Vincent, thank you so much for calling in. And also, thank you so much for asking me about Olivia Rodrigo's new song, Vampire. I, for one, stayed up like just after midnight. <laughs> On Friday, June 30th, when it was released, and I listened to it back to back to back before I went to sleep yesterday, and I have been blasting it all morning. My husband is a little tired of it at this point, but I'm not. Vampire is an amazing song. And you know what? People always talk about sophomore slump this, sophomore slump that. If you have a hit first album, which Olivia did have with Sour from a couple years ago, Chef's Kiss, Flawless Album. But I feel like with Vampire, the way that the first half of the song is like this slow heartbreak anthem. And then the second half, like the beat kicks up and you can kind of dance to it a little bit. I've seen um, her refer to this as like a a rock opera of sorts. And I totally see that 150%. Bleed me dry like a goddamn vampire. Olivia, her pen, the girl can write a song and she's got another hit on her hands. So I don't know what everybody's going to be doing this weekend. Uh, Me, myself, personally, I have a couple plans, but in between, I'm going to be bumping Vampire. And to all of you listening, I want to know what you want to talk about, too. Anything from the biggest pop culture story of the week to the newest bangers to the TV show everyone is talking about. If there's something everyone in your world is going on about, record a quick voice memo with your first name, location, and the topic, and send it to ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. I cannot wait to hear what you want to talk about. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. Our editor is... Jessica Plachek. We have fact-checking help from... Will Chase. Engineering support came from... Patrick Murray. Our executive producer is... Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is... Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of Programming is... Anya Grundman. All right, that's our show for today. I'm Brittany Luce. See you next week for another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign.
campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.